Welcome to Breaking Money Silence, a podcast series dedicated to helping all of us talk more openly about money. Each show features a special guest who will share with you one of their favorite money myths. Then together we'll discuss how to bust that myth wide open. My name is Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, and I am your host. My company is KBK Wealth Connection, and it's committed to helping women, couples, families, and their financial team shatter money taboos and learn how to effectively talk about money. It is such an honor today to be joined by my guest, Dr. Sarah Newcomb. Sarah is a behavioral economist at Morningstar Hello Wallet, where she works to integrate findings from behavioral science into financial management applications for individuals and financial advisors. Her research interests focus on the effects of social and cognitive psychology on personal financial decision-making. So now you know why she's invited, because I love that topic. Uh, Her work has been featured in the Washington Post, uh, Reuters, Money, and Bloomberg, and she's a regular contributor to psychologytoday.com. And most importantly, and how I discovered her, is she uh, recently released a book uh, by Wiley called Loaded, Money Psychology and How to Get Ahead Without Leaving Your Values Behind. Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to have this conversation. Um, I've been enjoying your book and um, really just uh, love that... uh, uh, it's out there and people are learning a little bit more about financial psychology every day. So definitely thanks for, I know the hard work it takes to write a book. So thanks for putting it out there. <laughs> sure thing. I'm just glad it's out in the world and people can read it now. Yes. Excellent. So today you picked a myth that I think is really interesting. So I'm really excited to kind of delve in here. Um, the myth that you picked is you have to know the difference between a want and a need. So can you tell me a little bit about what motivated you to pick that myth? Sure. Um, So I picked this myth for a couple of reasons. Um, First off, because it is, I believe, at the root of why so many of us hate budgeting. And second, because it's the kind of myth that it seems so true that most people don't dare to question it. You know, we've heard this from our parents and from our teachers and from people who teach us about budgeting and financial planning. It's such a bedrock of what we learn when we learn how to manage our money um, that we don't dare to question it. It's almost on the level of a truism. But I believe that we do need to question it and replace it with a better way of thinking. Okay. And and as you're saying that, and as I was reading the myth, I thought, oh, wow, you know, I've written blogs and things and certainly uh, have uh, put that in there. So what do you think the impact is, uh, either personally or professionally, on your lives or the lives of people who are listening when they buy into, and you're right, it's a myth, but it's it's also, it really is kind of a, a set rule that or a guideline that we hear quite often. So what do you think that impact is on people? Well, I, let me say that at its core, I think it's intended to teach us about trade-offs and priorities. And in that way, it, it can be a great and a helpful guide. So I don't think it's, it's bad through and through. Um, you know, training ourselves to take a moment before swiping your debit or credit card for an item, or I mean, let's be real, a cart full of items. <laughs> it can be a really good practice, you know. It, it's good to take that moment and be mindful. Um, but I think the question is a bit off. Um, so I, I think that in, you know, how did this help me? I always, before I replace something, I want to, I want to sort of thank it for the good that it's done in my life. Um, I think that it kind of gets us to that halfway point in reining in emotional shopping habits, uh, where we stop and we think, 
Do I need this? And in that way, it can be good, but it doesn't really help to solve the underlying issues that drive our emotional shopping. And so in that way, it actually can make the impulse to shop emotionally even worse. Um, so I think that when we subscribe to this myth, what we do is we put ourselves in a scarcity mindset. Um, we immediately, we feel limited by saying, well, I need to know the difference between a want and a need. And for some of us, feeling limited, it feels like we're depriving ourselves of the simple joys in life. And this is why budgeting feels like a diet for so many of us. Uh, the idea that you should only buy things that you need assumes that if you don't need it for physical survival, then you can do easily without it. And I challenge that. Um, yes, we need to learn how to live within our means, but not in a way that makes us feel restricted and unfulfilled. Um, so I'm a student of nonviolence. And when I learned Dr. Marshall Rosenberg's theory of human motivation, everything in my life, including the way I budget, changed. Um, so Dr. Rosenberg taught that everything we do is an attempt to meet a fundamental human need. Everything. So that $5 latte, maybe it's meeting your need for beauty because you love the environment of the coffee shop. Maybe it's entertainment. You like the buzz of the people around you. Maybe it's comfort or celebration or fun. These are all fundamental human needs. Uh, so those killer shoes that tug at my heartstrings, you know, they might be telling me that they're going to meet my need to feel powerful or like I matter or it'll help me somehow fulfill that image of my best self. And all these things, they're physical and emotional, but they're real needs. So to tell ourselves that the only needs that matter are our physical needs is to basically say that in order to be financially secure, we have to ignore our emotional needs. And that's not a trade-off that most of us are willing to make, to be honest. It, what's fascinating is uh, the connection between you know budgeting and dieting. And I, I bring that up a lot when I'm working with people or talking to audiences. Reason being, I have a background working with food and body image issues prior to this type of work. And I think I see so many parallels. Like when you tell someone to be on a diet, they just think, oh, I don't want to do that. You know, who wants to not have, you know, food you enjoy. But if you tell them they're on, you know, we're going to come up with a nutritional plan, that's different. And I feel very similarly, and it sounds like you do too, the word budgeting really has a negative connotation in our society as opposed to spending plan or to think about, what are my needs and the fact that it's it's not uh, necessarily bad or shameful um, to need, quote unquote, uh, those awesome pair of shoes, which is, you know, a place that I tend to prioritize. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And so I think I think, you know, the the difference is that um, I like to say that budgeting is not a diet. It's a map. Because what you're doing, it's a plan for how you're going to meet all of your needs with the resources that you have available. I love and so that. it's a plan for how are you going to feel, com feel completely fulfilled where you're not sabotaging your need for security to meet your need to feel confident. Now, you know, you, you, and so that's where I think... Hmm? No, go ahead. Well, that's where I think that the difference is actually a very subtle one in the question that we ask. Instead of saying, is this a want or a need... I think what we need to know is not the difference between a want and a need, but a difference between a, a need and a strategy to meet that need. So transportation is a need. We all have it. But a car, a bus, a bike, a train, 
They're all strategies to meet the very same need and they have different price tags associated with them. So I if love, you think this- I love that reframe because that's one of the things that I always think is really important is, okay, so if we've identified something that's a myth, there's always a strength to it. There's always an upside and then there's a downside. And so what you're saying is to reframe it into, um, well, how would you say it? If you, if you had to replace it with a new statement, if you had to replace, you have so to know I, the difference what, between a want and a need, what would be the new statement? The new statement is you have to know the difference between a need and a strategy to meet that need. Okay, great. Our needs are fundamental. They're a fundamental set of human needs that we all share. And when you don't meet a need, it doesn't go away. It just gets louder until you meet it. And that's why when we, when we think this other way and we don't go shopping, we, uh, we can be really good and then splurge because the need didn't go away. So when you cut line items out of your expenses, but you don't trace them back to the underlying need that you were meeting with that first strategy, you need to find a new strategy that's going to meet the need, fulfill the need, but cost you less money. So how do you, like if I'm a listener and I'm sitting here listening to our conversation, you know, what would be the first step to helping yourself develop a different way of thinking about wants and needs? Well, I think, um, again, taking from Dr. Rosenberg, um, a really simple rule of thumb is um, that if everyone in the world couldn't have it at the same time, it's a strategy, not a need. So we all need love. We can all have that at the same time. We all need to know that we're important. We can all have that at the same time. We all need transportation. We all need um, comfort, security. Um, we all need to know that we matter. These are fundamental needs. Some of them are emotional. Some of them are physical. Some of them are higher order. Um, but they're all needs. And we don't prioritize them like Maslow said, you know, in a hierarchy where we meet our physical needs first and our spiritual needs last. We all know that we flip that hierarchy on its head all the time. Every, all of these things are fundamental needs. Um, and so I think rather than asking yourself, do I really need this thing, saying, what is it that I'm wanting to feel? What is, what is the need that is crying out to be satisfied here? So for me, I'm tempted to shop after, you know, when I'm feeling low or um, when, my, when my ego gets worn down, you know. So maybe it's been a long week. Um, I'm feeling worn down and feeling low, I can take that moment and instead of asking myself, do I really need this thing? I can ask myself, what do I really need right now? So maybe it's comfort. Maybe it's fun. Maybe it's a diversion and a bit of a treasure hunt to get my mind off my day to day. Maybe I need to know that I matter or that I'm beautiful or that I'm loved, you know? So this picks up where that myth of a want and a need drops off. I want those shoes. I need to feel confident. You know, it's interesting because one of the things that happened when I moved to Vermont, a rural area that my listeners know I, I relocated from the Boston area, um, one of the things that happened is my biggest adjustment, it's kind of embarrassing, but I'll be honest, was the fact that there wasn't like a Kohl's down the street or a Target or even a CVS. And when I realized what was it about those shops and what, what did they fulfill, it definitely was the need of when I'm bored or I have writer's block, that I would go out and I, whether I buy something or not, I'd go out and it was a way of coping with that 
either loneliness or writer's block or whatever it might be. And so it did take a while. And now I'll go for a walk or I'll call a friend or maybe, you know, play with the cat. Um, But it sounds like it's similar to that of figuring out what is it actually that, you know, I need in this moment and how can I fulfill it if I don't, if I'm not going to choose to go out and shop. And when you're put in a place where shopping is not so easy, uh, unless you jump online, uh, that you're really able to make that distinction. Yeah, that's absolutely it. And so, you know, when you recognize what the underlying need is, then suddenly the world of strategies is so much more open to you. You know, maybe a phone call with a friend, uh, like you said, will meet the need or journaling or getting a good night's sleep. Um, so for me, if my need is for fun, um, then I give myself a really reasonable budget and I'll go on a hunt to find my new favorite thing for less than $25 or some other amount that's not going to interfere with any other priorities. Um, but but this, it's, the strategies are flexible. Our needs are constant, but our strategies are flexible. And so that's where we can focus our energy, where that myth of knowing the difference between a want and a need, it it stops being useful in that moment where you say, okay, now how do I, how do I still feel good? You know, it doesn't give us any way to feel fulfilled. But when we think about it in terms of needs and strategies, then we're not writing off all those things that we don't need for survival as unimportant. We're not feeling deprived. Um, we look for new strategies to meet our needs that cost less money, and then we feel fulfilled, we feel proud, we feel joyful. It makes budgeting something that's workable and sustainable over a lifetime. So like you said with the dieting, you know, you come up with a nutritional plan. If they love fruit and strawberries and things like that, then you focus on those things that they love that are both good for them and also um that they enjoy. And it's the same thing when we're, you know, if we are limited by our means. We need to learn how to live within our means, but we want to live joyful, fulfilled lives within our means. And so that the whole world of strategies is where the creative uh, action in budgeting comes. And it becomes this, this map of how do you map your resources onto your needs in a way that you feel completely fulfilled. Now, I have two questions. One has to do with parents in general. Um, in terms of uh, someone who's listening out there that has a younger you know, person in their lives, a child, how can you start to teach them about this concept? Because, you know, we, we often use the want-need concept as a very simple, you know, it's black and white, but it's a very simple concept for kids. How would you encourage parents to use this idea of needs and then strategy to meet needs when you're talking with a little person? Well, I think that's part of the beauty of it is that even a five-year-old can understand it. Um, You know, you help them to see, um, okay, what is your need? And then suddenly they get into the creative act of, well, what's another way to meet this need? You know, um, I like trying to, not in the heat of the moment, um, but when I'm... um, when I'm not feeling tempted to overspend, um, come up with, you know, think about the times when I am tempted and come up with other strategies that I can have on hand. So you might say with your kids, you know, okay, so next time um, we're in the grocery aisle, you know, and we're waiting in line and you see all the bubble gum and you see the little toys and things, um, what can you do to help you um, you know, help them come up with a strategy for getting through that moment of temptation 
um, ahead of time. And maybe it's that they bring their own toy. Maybe it's uh, help th let them come up with the with the new strategy. But I think what it is is you know even a five year old can understand when they feel these things and um, let them get involved in solving their own problems because they know what their need is. And it's a pretty great emotional um, strategy and a, a exercise in mindfulness um, to say, okay, last time I overspent or last time I felt deprived, what was it? What was it that I really wanted? I mean, it is a lot to ask a five-year-old to be introspective. Um, but I don't think it's a lot to ask them to recognize the difference between a need and a strategy. I think they can do that pretty easily. Well, and it also sounds like it's really teaching young people how to have that emotional intelligence. And so it may be on a very simple level, or I love the idea of kind of brainstorming ahead of time. And then you can, you know, maybe there's three choices. Okay, we talked about this, you know, we're standing here, you want that toy, what are the three things you could potentially do? Uh, it, it strikes me as that it not only would help around uh, money and budgeting, it would also help around all the different uh, negative coping mechanisms we tend to grab, you know, grab onto as adults. So it it sounds like a really neat thing to be able to uh, bring to a young person. Uh, and certainly like any, you know, teaching, you certainly over time, it can become a little bit more complex. Now, the second thought I had, and this just comes from, you know, working in wealth management and thinking, you know, about these families that have a lot of affluence. You talked about using this strategy, you know, to uh, make sure that you are spending within your means. Um, and I'm sure you've had this question before, but in terms of like, suppose your parents that are affluent and your means are great. Um, and so you are working on this either for yourself or working with your kids on this or your adolescence. How do you, how do you, or do you need to adjust this at all if you happen to have a, a fair amount of wealth? Well, I think, first of all, even uh, millionaires and multimillionaires um, need to budget if they don't want to spend their wealth down in their lifetime. True. Um, and that's a concept that I think a lot of people uh, don't, even, you know, people who come into great wealth don't always um, recognize. Uh, I think that, you know, you want to, in that case, you have the opportunity to uh, leave a legacy, you have the opportunity to create um, some really uh, powerfully influential institutions and um, and to teach lessons to your children in uh, making a difference in the world. And those can meet our needs to matter. It can meet our needs um, to nurture new life. It can meet our needs for um, for knowing that we're important and um, and for uh, respect and esteem. And so I think. You know, an affluent family, uh, one of the things that um, one of my mentors uh, who you know, Jim Grubman, used to say is that, you know, money doesn't change people. It just turns up the volume on what's already there. And uh, I think, you know, an affluent family, they may um, have fewer limitations on what they can spend on, but that doesn't mean that um, their lifestyles aren't, first of all, far more expensive. Um, and so just maintaining their home and their uh, a normal family life may cost three, four times as much as it does for another family. And so they may find that they do need to budget. Uh, they can't do everything that's available under the sun to them. Um, and so I think, you know, prioritizing needs of today and needs of the future, needs for, um, for security, for uh, peace of mind, for um, 
that need to make a difference in the world, uh, leave a legacy. I just think that when you have more affluence, you just have a, a larger uh, set of paints to work with, so to speak. Um, but I don't think that the principle breaks down. Um, people can be mismanaging wealth because they're meeting emotional needs with poor strategies. And maybe the underlying need, maybe the way that they're directing their wealth isn't meeting the underlying need sufficiently. Um, I think it's a good thing to look at no matter how much you have to work with. Well, and, and I think, you know, what I just hit upon without realizing it is another myth that's out there that if you're affluent, you don't need to budget, uh, which we both mm -hmm. know is not true. Um, so it, it's interesting to hear kind of your thoughts. And I think that that's really helpful for people who are listening in right now. Um, so time goes so quickly. I want you to talk a little bit about this great book that you put out there and how um, people who are listening in can find out more about the work that you're doing. Can you say a little bit about that, Sarah? Sure. Um, yeah, so the book is called Loaded, Money, Psychology, and How to Get Ahead Without Leaving Your Values Behind. And it's really written um, to fill a space that I, I think uh, was needed, where most money management books out there are written toward people who... Um, who want to be rich and see uh, see nothing conflicting in that. But most of us, I think, have a more complicated relationship with money and wealth and society than that. And so I wanted to uh, write the book that I wish existed <laughs> when I was younger. And... Um, and so it's, it's an overview in uh, money psychology, social psychology, cognitive psychology, and it also uh, really dives in deeply into this idea of how to think about money in a way that blends healthy psychology with sound economic principles so that you can uh, meet all your needs uh, for today and tomorrow and get ahead, which is not about getting ahead of other people, it's about getting ahead of your own needs. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm just really excited that it's out there. If people are interested in reading it, um, it's definitely scientific, but it's written for everyone. And uh, it's available on Wiley.com, Amazon.com, anywhere, anywhere books are sold, you can get it. Um, and there's also my website, LoadedBudget.com, um, and the Loaded blog on Psychology Today. So uh, you can find me in a lot of places. Excellent. Well, we'll put up all those links when we post the podcast. So it'll be easy for people to find you. Um, I can say that, you know, I know I'm uh, someone who works in this field, but reading the book, it's uh, it's very enjoyable and digestible. And I'm not somebody who likes to read a lot of deep research. And I, I would definitely say that this book is very accessible uh, and certainly something I think, Sarah, that uh, was missing. So I'm really glad um, that you were able to put it out there and, and really impressed with your work. So thank you so much for spending time with me today. I really uh, have enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for having me. And I want to just say thank you for all the work that you're doing as well. Thank you. And, you know, to everybody who's listening, thanks for listening in to Breaking Money Silence. I'm Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, a wealth psychology expert and author, and I'm dedicated to getting people talking about money matters. I'm currently working on my next book called Breaking Money Silence. Uh, and for more information about my previous work, my speaking and other services, please visit my website at kbkwealthconnection.com. And remember that together we can break money silence for good.